Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 4th of December. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith and also here this week is our naked archaeologist, no less, Diana O'Carroll. Hello, Diana. Oh, yes. Hello. Well, this week we're diving down beneath the waves to discover how archaeologists locate and recover treasure from old shipwrecks. And we'll also be talking to an engineer who has pioneered a way to weld underwater and repair pipelines almost a kilometre down. And also coming up, a new vaccine for HIV that can completely block infection in experimental animals. A computer programme that can spot when a photo's been photoshopped and does heading a football cause brain damage. Wayne Rooney's all right, isn't he? (laughs) Now, now. Anyway, if you have any questions or comments on the programme, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Or you can drop us an email. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. Shipwrecks are often described as underwater time capsules. They can give us a snapshot in time from the bygone years, glimpses into military life, trading, relations between countries, social life and construction techniques. And to discuss the archaeology of shipwrecks, we have with us an archaeologist with mask, fins and spare snorkel, Dr Dave Parham from Bournemouth University. Hello. Hello. Hi. So I know you've been working on the Swash Channel wreck. So tell us a bit about that. What's the history behind it? It's an early 17th century, probably Dutch armed merchantman that was wrecked outside Pearl Harbour and found about 10 years ago now. And what sort of problems are facing it when it's in its current state at the moment? Well, it's been buried since it was wrecked sometime in, in the 1630s. But gradually over the last 10 or 20 years, it started to become exposed So the wreck itself and its contents that's been preserved by being buried is now exposed to the elements and being rapidly degraded. So how has it become exposed? What processes have caused that to happen? It's natural erosion. I think the the seabed in the area was affected by Victorian coastal engineering, which means that it's the sediment flowing into the bays less than it used to be. And what was a large sandbank is gradually becoming smaller. I see. So when you've got uh, timbers and and things that will decay naturally, then this becomes a very big problem. So what kind of methods can you use to conserve a wreck like that? It's difficult when they're on the seabed because nature is taking the seabed away and it's quite a hard thing to stop that. You can cover them. We've covered parts of the wreck in in Tehran, which is a sort of plastic matting and sandbags that cover it back up again. And we'll also put more sand on it. But ultimately, if if the whole of the seabed around it is reducing, you're onto a bit of a losing battle. And are sandbags the only methods you can use to shore ships like that up? Are there other things, other sort of structural uh, ways of solving the problem? You can use other methods for trapping sediment on top of the wreck. You can buy a sort of plastic um, seagrass that traps sand from the water column and allows it to fall onto the wreck is, is another way of doing it. 
but the simplest way is, is sandbags and terrain, which seems to work well. OK, so that's the structural bit of the ship, but what about the stuff that's inside it? How do you conserve the bits and pieces that were wrecked with it? Again, it's the same thing. As long as you can keep the sediment on top of the wreck, the material that's contained within the sediment will, will be all right as long as it's not exposed. So it's all about trying to keep the seabed as it was, trying to maintain it in one place. I see. Um, and then how do you decide what you're going to leave down there and then what you're going to raise to the surface? Well, we made a decision, along with English Heritage, who managed the site, that we would leave everything on the seabed that we thought we, we could maintain there, which is about 80% of the site, and then remove what is in fact the bow of the wreck, which actually juts out in, into a shipping channel, remove that because we didn't think that we could have a chance of saving that. So it was a, a pragmatic decision, really, in that we would, we would save and leave everything on the seabed that we could and only remove the stuff that we didn't think stood any chance of surviving. I see. And, and what kind of bits have you removed so far? We excavated the bow of the wreck. It's, it's the bow that's the most endangered. So we, we uncovered that and excavated the contents of that and we've uncovered the structure. And we've been gradually taking that structure apart so that we, um, into individual timber components, which allows us to raise it as individual timbers rather than a big object. OK, and then how did you go about actually raising it and how, how deep is this buried underwater? What kind of problems did you face? It's, in, it, it's not very deep. It's only in about seven metres of water, but it's an exposed location. It's exposed to the prevailing winds and it's also within a shipping channel that has significant tidal movement. So our, our biggest problems are natural. Uh, a combination of wind and tide mean that we can only dive on the site a few weeks each month which makes it difficult to plan anything too far into a head, so it's a natural problem for us. And what are the bits of machinery that you use to lift this stuff up from the sea? Do you use airbags? Do you lift it all by hand? It's, uh, no, it's, it's all been quite simple. The majority of material has been lifted by hand. The large ship's timbers, we've placed those on a steel frame that is raised onto a crane barge. And once you've got it all out of the water, then what happens? Does it all get taken apart and taken to the museum and then reconstructed? All of the material that's come up is, is going to be analysed and studied. The structure itself is going to be recorded completely and we're hoping to raise the money to, to conserve the structure and then place that on, on display in Pool Museum. I see. And what's going to come up next? Next will, will be the bow of the wreck. We we took that apart in the summer and we've been planning to raise it now for almost six weeks, but we've been hampered by the weather conditions, all these gales and, and rain that we've been having mean that we can't dive. So we're currently waiting on the weather. Oh, well, the windsurfers will like it, though. Moving on to a slightly uh, different subject, I mean, what is the, the most striking thing that you've seen on a wreck, apart from this one? The most striking thing I've seen on a wreck are, are actually the, some of the material from this side, because we've got carvings on the wreck we've got the earliest ship's carvings in the united kingdom and they're, they're quite a striking sight we've got two carvings of mermen fish's tail and a, and a man's head one very large carving of a male head which is on the the head of the rudder and we've got a couple of much smaller carvings of sort of gargoyles which are from around the gun ports on the wreck so this is all decoration that was on there originally, but it is very striking to look at and very unusual for it to survive. Well, fantastic, but why would they have carvings like that on a, on a merchant ship? It's, it's a status indicator, I think. that This is owned by an organisation that is trying to make a point, somebody that is demonstrating that they are something above and beyond the rest of their competitors. It's a very large merchant ship for its time, and this is all about demonstrating to your competitors and people around you that you're somebody worth trading with. Can anyone see these carvings yet? They're currently being conserved, but we're hoping to have some of them available for public display in Paul Museum next year. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. That was Dave Parnham from the University of Bournemouth. Now, apart from the oceans, inland waterways can also be extremely rich sources of archaeology. And the River Thames, which of course flows through the middle of London, is awash with history that erosion is now steadily revealing. A project called the Thames Discovery Programme monitors the foreshores, and Mira Senthalingam ventured out at low tide with archaeologist Elliot Ragg at a site in Greenwich. 
The Thames Discovery Programme is a successor to an organisation called the Thames Archaeological Survey, who uh, 10 to 15 years ago undertook a large-scale survey of the intertidal zone of the River Thames looking for archaeological features and deposits. And we looked at their records and identified what we call 20 uh, key sites, and we've gone down and recorded and monitored them with over 300 members of the public and identify uh, areas which are at threat, where features may be eroding away, and then we'll come in and uh, record anything that uh, is liable to get washed away by the river. And so, well, we're at one of the 20 identified sites now. So we're in Greenwich, um, just along the shores of the Thames here. And behind us is the University of Greenwich, which has quite a a long history in its own right. Well, yes, it's a a World Heritage Site. I mean, these magnificent Baroque buildings were uh, originally built as a hospital for uh, injured and and ailing seamen, not not for princes or kings. Before the the hospital, there was an earlier palace, the Palace of Placentia, built in the 15th century, which was the birthplace of Henry VIII, Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth. The the Tudors liked it very much. And what we're starting to find out on the foreshore are a lot of features which uh, relate to the earlier medieval structure. And so, um, well, it's quite busy down here on the shores, so we've got um, a band rehearsal taking place behind (laughs) us, and then there are many of the um, Thames clippers going past, and we're really in the middle of London, really, but yet you've got all of these archaeological finds just here on the shores. It's quite odd. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, when the Thames Archaeological Survey came down, they recorded structures which have now gone, and a lot of the stuff we're seeing today wasn't there 10, 15 years ago. It was covered up, and it's slowly, as the foreshore drops around it, it's starting to poke up. Uh, one of the things we can see here is a whole load of uh, rectangular semi-halved timber piles driven into the foreshore. And this looks very much like a, a jetty structure coming off the, uh, the river wall, but this would predate the current building, so this is probably a later medieval jetty. So you've just got, what, these small lumps of timber, so what, going quite a, a fair distance, a good few metres um, in front of us there, just in parallel to each other. Yeah, so they, they, they're in parallel lines, which suggests they're in a, a coherent structure. As you say, it's about probably five metres uh, along the foreshore. So we're looking at a reasonably substantial late medieval or Tudor jetty, which probably would have led to the palace. But just moving a couple of metres down towards the river now, um, there's a big, long plank, really, a few metres in length, which I have to admit I wouldn't possibly notice, but now that I'm here with you and I'm staring at the ground, (laughs) it's quite obvious. Yeah, it's not quite a plank, it's what we call a base plate. You can see there are these rectangular mortises cut into it with large rectangular tenons driven through to hold it in place. And you can just see two arms coming backwards up the foreshore to form a sort of horseshoe or U-shape. And if we turn around, we can see it's directly in line with what we think is our late medieval or Tudor jetty. But this sort of construction is a completely different technique This sort of technique, we think, dates to the 12th century. So that suggests this is a similar access point from the 12th century through into the late medieval, into the Tudor period. We do know that Greenwich was a royal manor from the 10th century onwards. So there's clearly a place where there's going to be a bit of investment and a bit of traffic coming up and down uh, and up from the river. But interestingly, moving even further towards the shore now, basically on it, there are some solid structures, almost solid lumps there, which are also jetties from an earlier age. We're not for certain, but we can walk down and have a look. You'll also notice there's a huge socking uh, anchor chain there, which is more, a mooring point for, for ships, and we know that's 20th century. And we've known about these large rectangular timber piles uh, for some time, but we assumed there was something to do with the anchor chain uh, and were thus modern. But now we've got these other structures which have eroded out, you can see they're directly in line with them. So given the the massive engineering of these things, the only other people who do that are Romans. And given that we've got a medieval jetty, and further down we've got a 12th century jetty, and further down here we've got these massive rectangular piles. And I think what we might be looking at is a Roman jetty down here. They make a lot more sense as a Roman structure than as as a modern one. So essentially here, you've got a tail of this jetty over time. So a jetty, you know, people needed them to get access down into the water. Yeah. And, you've, and people throughout time have just built from that original Roman structure. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to remember that up until the coming of the railways, uh, 
the river is your easiest and cheapest form of transport. Here, we, we seem to have an access point through time. We know there's a, a Roman religious complex up on the hill in Greenwich Park, so that may have been where it kicked off, and people have just kept using the access point. And is it quite difficult, I guess, because just you know, looking at these structures, I can't really tell too much of this story. Is it quite hard piecing this all together to get the result you've come up with? Well, it takes a while looking at the techniques they're using to shape the wood, how they're using it. But also we know sea levels have been broadly rising for 14,000, 16,000 years. So it's quite interesting. We've got what we think is our earliest structure right down at the bottom of the low tide zone. And then we go up through the 12th century into the late medieval period as the river levels rise throughout this period. And interestingly, what we're here at midday, really, yeah. So, and it's all just really visible now. So, yeah. you know, when the tide comes in, just can't see it. Oh, yeah, we'll all be covered up. We'll be, uh, where we're standing there, there'd be about two metres of water above our heads. So. Good thing we came now, then. Yeah. Just a little. So there's really quite a, a wide range of things just on this one site. So this, combined with the other 19 or so you have, you must be really getting a good insight into the history of London and its uses of the Thames. Well, we're getting a a massive range of different types of features and deposits from all sorts of different periods. We've got 19th and 18th century uh, ship-breaking remains, large vessel timbers, got a Bronze Age jetty. We've even got what possibly may be a Mesolithic structure, which uh, had a carbon date of uh, 4,500 BC. So with all these sort of things coming together, we're really starting to to put together a a really broad picture of how the river has been used by Londoners through uh, thousands of years. Elliot Ragg from the Thames Discovery Programme, which is part of the Museum of London Archaeology. He was talking with Mira Senthalingam. Now, Diana, he was talking a lot about structures that they're seeing there, but are they doing anything actually to try and conserve that material? Well, generally speaking, I think they just leave stuff there if it's structural, if it's something like a jetty, and they will photograph it and they will record it, but they will leave it be. Um, But there are other people called mudlarkers who um, scan the shores of the Thames and they actually pick up bits and pieces like bricks and bottles and they get taken to museums. Thank you very much. Well, if you'd like to get in touch with us to talk about anything to do with undersea archaeology or what's coming up in a short while, which is how you do engineering underwater, and specifically how you weld up pipelines, maybe a kilometre down. You can, of course, tweet at Naked Scientists. We've got a Facebook page in the name of The Naked Scientist, and you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com too. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dinah O'Carroll. And we'll be diving back beneath the waves in a moment when we'll hear how engineers have come up with a way to weld up pipes underwater. But before that, let's take a look at what else has been making scientific headlines this week. Dinah, what have you got? Well, this week, a team of researchers in France, Russia and the USA have reported that Voyager spacecrafts 1 and 2, launched 34 years ago, have made it far enough out of the solar system to detect Lyman alpha emission. Now, Lyman alpha emission is an ultraviolet radiation and it's generated when an electron moves between the first and second levels, um, energy levels of hydrogen. And it's thought to be an indicator of regions where star formation has occurred. But in order to look at Lyman alpha radiation, you have to move far away from the clouds of hydrogen gas that are present in our solar system. Because otherwise they would mask the signal. Exactly. And um, it's these hydrogen particles called a heliospheric hydrogen glow, which can also scatter and disrupt Lyman alpha radiation, just as city lights can interfere with your view of the stars. Now, both voyagers have now travelled far enough away from the sun to look back and see through this hydrogen glow. Now, previously, Lyman alpha emission has only been predicted with a equations. But writing in the journal Science, Rosine Lalmont and colleagues from the University of Paris Diderot can confirm that this emission has been detected and it does have its origin in the regions surrounding newborn stars. So we can therefore use this information and look at other galaxies as well as the Milky Way in order to understand where a star formed. Do you know I'm really gobsmacked, not just by that discovery, which is amazing in its own right, but these probes that were built 
over 30 years ago. They're not even in our solar system anymore. They're still in communication with us. They're still doing science, yet the microwave oven I bought five years ago has already <laughs> clapped out and been replaced. Yeah, exactly. If you bought a telly in the 70s, the chances are it's probably not working anymore. Actually, um, I did have a telly that was working from almost the 70s until very recently, so not quite. I just The point I'm trying to make is that new technology does not seem to have the same resilience that old stuff did. I don't know. I don't know. Ask, ask me again in 34 years, um, and I'm still sort of beating up my poor old computer. Um, but it's, it's a bit of a sad note to it, really, because Voyager 2's spectrometer actually had to be switched off to conserve power so these poor little things are floating off into space losing energy and the, the spectrometer in Voyager 1 will probably probably be turned off soon too and it means that those spacecraft will not be able to collect much more data on Lyman Alpha sources. too soon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know um, but it might be that this new uh, New Horizon spacecraft which was built in 2006, I'll have you know uh, might be able to take over that mission. So. That's on the way to Pluto isn't it New Horizons? Yeah, it's, it's going to get to Pluto in uh, about 2015 so it might be able to do some sort of data collection like that. Will that one be far enough away then that it will also get round the problem of this hydrogen glow from our own yeah. Uh, solar system. Yeah, obviously it's not as far out as, as the Voyagers are at the moment, but it should be able to get some, some good preliminary data from that position, yes. Well, from the macrocosmic scale down to the micro scale, and a way to immunise and produce protective antibodies against HIV using a gene therapy technique has been demonstrated by scientists in America. Now, we sorely need a vaccine against HIV because... Every day, about 7,000 new infections with HIV occur. Now, to put that in perspective, that's about five per minute new infections with HIV. And every day, there's about 7,000 deaths from HIV. And the vaccines that have been attempted to be created up until now have been a very, very limited outcome. I mean, they've, they've been very poor results in terms of their degree of protection. And the reason for this is that they just don't seem to elicit antibodies that can block HIV infection across a broad enough scale because HIV comes in many different strains or types and trying to make antibodies that can block all of them appears to be very difficult. But in recent years, scientists have found that people who already have HIV do actually make antibodies that are very good at blocking pretty much all types of HIV. So that, that begs the question, well, if you had those antibodies on board before infection or challenge took place, would it prevent the virus actually gaining a toehold? And the evidence would seem to be yes. So what a group of scientists, and this is David Baltimore and his colleagues, they're at Caltech in America. What they have done and published in the journal Nature this week is they have used a virus called an adeno-associated virus, AAV8, and they have put into that the gene for one of these antibodies made by people who have a broadly neutralising response to HIV, in other words, people who already have HIV, and they've, they've used an antibody called B12. So they put the gene for that antibody into this virus. They then inject that virus into the leg muscles of experimental mice. And within a week, these experimental mice are making from their muscles very high levels of these B12 antibodies that can block HIV. And they're a bit special, these mice, because they are modified, so they actually have a human immune system. They have human CD4 cells, so you can infect them with HIV. They then challenge the mice with a dose of HIV that is 100 times bigger than it would normally take to infect one of these mice. They are completely protected from infection. And as the researchers say, they say, given the level of protection that VIP, and that's what they dub their procedure, vectored immunoprophylaxis, VIP, has demonstrated in vivo, we believe that highly effective prophylaxis through expression of existing monoclonal antibodies against HIV in humans is achievable. Let's hope so. Well, that's incredible. I mean, how far away are they from clinical trials, do you think? Well, I mean, I, I talked to one of the virologists at Cambridge University this week and, and he shared my own slight uh, reservations, which is that we don't know what the long-term effect of expressing these sorts of antibodies, even though they're human antibodies, at very high levels for a long time in a human might be. Um, and we also don't know how much virus you would need to protect a person. To protect a mouse, it took 10 to the 11, 100 billion virus particles being injected. A human's considerably bigger than a mouse, so you'd have to inject a very, very large dose of virus in order to potentially protect a human, but it's a really important proof of concept, very elegant study. 
And would that large dose have to all be injected at once as well? Could you not just do it over a period of time? Well, the more viruses you put in, the more templates, in other words, copies of the antibody gene you've got, and therefore the higher the potential antibody level you can get in the blood is. I can't see many people putting up their hands and saying, I'll volunteer to have a low level of antibody and you can try injecting me with HIV and see if I get it. No, indeed. Well, um, on a slightly happier note, uh, this week researchers in the UK have accomplished quantum entanglement on the macro scale. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? Uh, They've entangled two millimetre sized diamonds. Now, typically, we think of objects moving and interacting according to classical mechanics, i.e. Newton's second law. If you apply a force to one object um, and it will cause it will cause it to accelerate in a particular direction. But in quantum mechanics, there are extra complications such as entanglement, where an action performed on one object will affect another, even if they are at a distance, which is something uh, described by Einstein as spooky. But studying these quantum effects on things any larger than an atomic particle is tough because there's so much environmental noise. Once in the um, macroscopic scale, there are too many extra factors which are difficult to eliminate. So the usual approach that scientists take is to lower the temperature and so reduce what's called thermal noise. But publishing in the journal Science, a team led by Ian Walmsley of Oxford University took three millimetre wide pieces of diamond, so that's three millimetres wide, um, and tried to look at them in a more typical environment with an ambient temperature. Now, to get round uh, the problem of other noisy interactions that could interfere with results, they shortened the experiment to a matter of femtoseconds, and they did this using laser pulses. So next, they had to do the actual entanglement, which they achieved by setting up a beam splitter and detectors. They fired two laser pulses at each diamond, 350 femtoseconds apart, so that's 10 to the minus 15 is a femtosecond. And the second pulse picked up uh, the energy from the first that, that the first pulse left behind before reaching the detector as an especially energetic photon. Now, if the system was classical, the second photon should pick up extra energy only half of the time, so 50%. Uh, only if it happened to hit the diamond where the energy was deposited in the first place. But in 200 trillion trials, the team found that the second photon picked up extra energy every time. Why? Where is it getting it from? <laughs> well, it means that it means that uh, this energy is happening in a closed system. Well, sorry, it's not happening in a closed system. It's happening across these two diamonds. Um, so it means that the energy is not contained within each diamond, but that they shared the same state as if they were one system. So it had already been predicted that this could be done with larger objects at ambient ambient temperature, but actually doing it is something else altogether. So although brief, this may be a step towards some real-world quantum computing where entanglement allows you to store far more complex information than binary digits. My God, that's amazing. Where's that published? Science. I'm going to have to go and read that one. Thank you, Diana. Finally this week, scientists at the University of Montreal in Canada have also discovered what it is that controls this entity called the blood-brain barrier. Now, the blood-brain barrier is this special chemical cocoon that envelops the brain and the spinal cord, and it keeps things in the blood, including chemicals and cells and antibodies, out of the central nervous system. And it does a very important job because you don't want spurious chemicals getting into the brain where they could affect brain function. But exactly how that blood-brain barrier works and is orchestrated has always been very poorly understood. But now what Alexandra Pran and his colleagues have discovered is that it's all down to a signal which is pretty well known to neurobiologists. It's called sonic hedgehog, which is an important chemical signal that controls how different cells in the nervous system talk to each other. During development, it controls the development of the brain and during adult life it also controls how other cells interact or link together and that's exactly what's going on here what they've found is that brain cells called astrocytes snuggle up very closely to the endothelial cells these are the cells that line blood vessels in the brain and they send out this sonic hedgehog signal and they make the cells form lots of what are called junctional proteins and these are like linkages which bind the cells tightly together and in the presence of this signal things that are in the blood find it much harder to go across into the brain tissue and this includes things like immune cells also other proteins antibodies and just fluid in general but there is a chemical called cyclopamine which blocks the effect of sonic hedgehog and so what the researchers have shown is if you give cyclopamine to cells in culture 
and to animals, you end up with a reduction in the integrity of the blood-brain barrier, which seems to sort of confirm their hypothesis. And then they take it one step further and they say, well, multiple sclerosis is caused by the immune system attacking a chemical called myelin, a substance that wraps around nerve fibres and effectively insulates them. And for some reason in people with MS, the immune system attacks that myelin and it causes demyelination and nerve dysfunction. There's an animal model of this condition and what they found is that if you give this cyclopamine chemical to these animals with the multiple sclerosis-like condition, actually they get much worse symptoms, probably because the immune system finds it much easier to get into the brain and attack the myelin. And conversely, if you look at brain tissue from patients who have multiple sclerosis, you see that where they've got patches of demyelination where the immune system has attacked the brain, in those areas the levels of the sonic hedgehog signal are much higher, which suggests that the brain is trying to protect itself. So they're suggesting that as well as now understanding how the blood-brain barrier gets assembled and controlled, what the underlying chemical trigger is, actually being able to manipulate this could be really useful because we now have a way to potentially turn it off to get chemicals that we want to get into the brain, into the brain, but also maybe to beef it up in order to stop the immune system getting into the brain and causing flare-ups of multiple sclerosis. So people with MS, are you saying, need more of this sonic hedgehog chemical in order to um, deal with their condition? That's right, because if you look at where the brain is most inflamed in multiple sclerosis, the cells that are there are trying to repair the nervous system. They're triggering more of this sonic hedgehog to increase the integrity of the blood-brain barrier, which actually is disabled or reduced in MS, so it's the brain trying to fight back. What they're saying is if we increase the level of the blood-brain barrier signal in the first place, it might stop the immune system getting in in the first place in such a bad way, and therefore the symptoms and the flare-ups that people with MS characteristically get would be much less severe. I see, so it could be the first of many important steps in solving the problem of MS. And you can find the transcripts and references for all of the stories we've discussed and they're on our website and that's thenakedscientists.com forward slash news. Now also this week, scientists in the US have developed a computer programme that can spot the degree to which photos have been digitally doctored. Now one of the authors of that study is Professor Hani Farid from Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. He's with us now. Uh, first of all, Hani, why did you go ahead and develop this system? We were in fact motivated by legislation in the UK that was considering mandating that altered or retouched photos be labelled as such. And that of course was in response to the body of literature that is linking eating disorders, um, body dissatisfaction with the overexposure to extremely retouched photos. And one of the criticisms of, the, of that legislation was that um, publishers were arguing that a, a simple label saying this has been retouched would not, in fact, distinguish between very simple types of manipulations like color correction and cropping and the more extreme forms of photo retouching. And we wanted to create the ability to distinguish between those types of manipulation. So there would be almost like a sort of Richter scale of the degree of photo manipulation, which the law could require people who publish photos to publish with the photo, but because it's an industry standard, everyone's on an even footing and it would enable people to make a value judgment as to whether that picture is faithful to reality or not. That's exactly right. So it's a scale of one to five. One means the image is largely unchanged from the original photograph, and five means there's been a radical shift in the underlying appearance of the person. And I'll also add is that in addition to being useful in a legislative sense, it could also be used in a voluntary sense. I mean, photo retouchers often just, it gets away from them. They do one little tuck here and a little nip there, and pretty soon you're looking at a Barbie doll. And so the ability to, in real time, give feedback to what your manipulations are doing, we think would also be very useful for the photo retoucher. So how did you actually approach this? How did you go about writing a computer program that would generate an objective readout of how the pictures were different, but which, and this is the real rub, would be meaningful to a human eye? That's exactly what the rub is. is um, so we as mathematicians and computer scientists know how to model computer alterations, but how do we predict or model how a person would perceive changes? So there was two basic stages. The first stage was the mathematics. How do we mathematically model the alterations to a photograph? And that includes geometric changes, things that alter the shape of the body, um, the, the length of the neck, the width of the hips, and so on. And photometric changes, things that change the um, skin tone, 
the wrinkles, the color. And those are the types of manipulations that we know uh, photo retouchers do. And after about a year of effort, we found a way to mathematically model all of that. Now, of course, that mathematical model is not exactly what we want. So the second stage was to collect many, many images of the original and retouch and ask human observers to rate them on a scale of one to five. And for that, we used a crowdsourcing tool where we were able to collect data from hundreds and hundreds of people from around the world. And then the magic was linking up the mathematical measurements with the human measurements. And for that, we use some very nice statistical machine learning tools that allow you to learn a mapping between a bunch of numbers, which are the mathematical measurements and how people perceive. And as it turned out, although it didn't have to be this way, that they correlated extremely well with each other. So the people give their impression, the computer gives its impression, and you can use the people's impression to validate the computer model. So you know that your computer is returning a value which is meaningful not just to another computer but is is the way that a person would perceive the changes to that picture. That's exactly right. And if the mathematical model was not properly constructed, that may not have been true. I mean, there are plenty of mathematical models that have nothing to do with human perception. So the magic was how do you develop the mathematical model in a way that you have at least a chance of doing that modeling. And honey... The idea would be that you could apply your model across the globe and say to people, right, if you're going to do some photo retouching, you have to subject it to analysis by our system. But say I was a nifty artist, are we not going to see a game of sort of graphical cat and mouse here where people will begin to manipulate photos in a way that actually can fool your algorithm in just the same way that people make web pages that fool Google's algorithm? Absolutely. This is a cat and mouse game, and, it, and I equate it to the same as the spam anti-spam and the virus antivirus and the, the search internet. Um, and there is a game, and people will try to game the system. And that does mean that we, the technology will have to evolve um, to play that game. I, I think the most powerful use of the technology is at the voluntary basis, as I said. I, I do think that photo retouchers sometimes just get a little carried away without knowing it. And I think even just that amount of information will be very useful. But obviously, in the legislative sense, there is going to be a game here, and we're going to have to play that game like we would in any other field. Terrific. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you for joining us to explain how it works. That was Hanny Fareed from the Computer Sciences Department of Dartmouth College. Diana. And now, with a look at what else has been sparking scientific interest around the globe, here's Mira Senthilingam with the Naked Scientist's News Flash. A new drug target to fight malaria has been identified by scientists at the University of Leicester. The disease results in nearly 800,000 deaths globally each year and is caused by invasion of red blood cells by the parasite Plasmodium falciparum. Current drugs on the market have started to see resistance developing against them, causing scientists to be on the lookout for new ways to kill the parasite. Now, Andrew Tobin's team have identified a crucial group of proteins known as kinases, needed by the parasite to survive in the bloodstream, making them a prime target to stop invasion. The protein kinases act on almost all aspects of the parasite biochemical life, if you like. It acts on DNA replication, so it acts on growth and on uh, replicating inside the red blood cells. It acts on metabolism. It acts on invasion proteins themselves, so how the parasite gets into the red blood cell. These protein kinases have huge impact on many areas of the parasite's biochemistry and as a consequence have a huge impact in keeping the parasite alive. Too many headers when playing football could lead to brain injury, according to work presented at the annual meeting of the Radiological Society of North America this week. By scanning the brains of 32 amateur football players in the US, Michael Lipton from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine found that players who frequently headed the ball during games had brain abnormalities in regions such as those responsible for memory and attention, causing changes similar to patients with traumatic brain injury or concussion. The team identified a threshold level of 1,000 to 1,500 headers per year before significant damage is caused. We're not saying that heading is bad and the more you do, the worse it is. But rather, up until a certain threshold level, there is a very low likelihood of finding this type of injury. The message here is not that using your head against the soccer ball is necessarily universally bad, but that excessive heading may lead to changes which could be related to brain injury. Ravens have been found to point and gesture at objects to attract each other's attention 
in a similar way to that seen in humans. Previously, the only animal group thought to use gestures such as pointing to draw attention to something and holding an object for another to take were the great apes. But now, after two years monitoring ravens in the wild, Thomas Bunyer and colleagues from the Max Planck Institute of Ornithology found the birds using their beaks to show or offer objects such as twigs and stones, either to interest the opposite sex or strengthen social bonds. The work adds further evidence to theories of a convergent evolution of the corvid bird family, which includes ravens, in parallel to the evolution of humans. Now, when we find those behaviours in the ravens, this suggests that those birds have obviously evolved certain social cognitive skills independently of the primate image, and this fits perfectly into a larger picture we have of those birds, and not only ravens but corvids in general suggesting that it's really kind of a sister group to primates in respect to their cognitive skills. Mira Santillingham. And you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Diana O'Carroll and with me, Chris Smith. Time now for this week's Planet Earth, and we're off in search of the disappearing European shag, which is a seabird similar to a cormorant. Hannah Grist from the University of Aberdeen is studying the birds on the Isle of May to see how the population varies over winter, as she explained to Sue Nelson. A lot of research has been done on puffins and a lot less has been done on something like the European shag because people see it everywhere and, and don't think it's a really fascinating seabird. But actually, we've learnt a lot using the European shag system. On the Isle of May, we've been looking at them for about 30, 40 years now. So we've got a lot of data behind us that we can use to answer a lot of questions. And what questions are you particularly posing? Well, the thing we're looking at at the moment is, because a lot of the work we've done on the Isle of May has been during the breeding season, which is when they're there breeding, obviously... But what we don't really know is what's happening to them over the winter period. I mean, this is half the year for, for birds, so it's, it's ridiculous that we're not really paying attention to what's going on over this time. Is that because they disappear or because they stay there and keep out of, out of sight? Well, for European shags, for the Isle of May population, what we think they're doing is that uh, a proportion of the population is staying on the Isle of May over the winter and the rest of them are travelling up and down the coast, up to... 200, 300, 400 kilometres away from the Isle of May and staying the winter in different locations. And what we're really trying to do is, is find out why they're making that journey and what kind of effect it has on them. How do you do that then? Do you ring them? Yes, all the shags on the Isle of May are actually colour ringed. You can't really see it in the distance right now, but they have plastic rings on the legs that have a three-letter code in them and are brightly coloured. And this is basically what we're looking for using the telescope, is that we can read the code from a distance, we don't have to recapture them. It means that over the winter we can try and find them and see where individuals are and then relate that back to what we see on the island. I know this research project is ongoing, but what have you found so far? Any surprises? I think the surprises are just the sheer distances that some of these birds are going. For example, we have had reports of birds from Orkney, which is a, you know, a huge distance up the coast for them to be travelling. And also we're, we're kind of looking at if there's any kind of, of segregation within the population. So if, for example, partners might be, might be moving together or offspring are moving together. And we're not really sure if that's happening at the moment yet, but we have had some anecdotes of partners being seen courting in different locations and, and juveniles have, from a single nest having stayed together. So these are kind of interesting things that we can be looking at in the future. Do populations of European shags tend to stay stable? Shags are uh, actually quite an interesting seabird because they seem to follow a kind of, this is what we call a boom and bust dynamic. They breed quite fast for a long-lived bird, but they also can have really high mortality rates. So over the winter in particular, we can lose huge numbers of the populations in what are called winter wrecks. And in around 93, 94, we actually lost about 90% of the Isle of May population in a really bad winter. So the winter can have quite a significant effect on this, this population. That does make it odd then that why only some of the birds leave. You would have thought, why don't all of them go? Particularly when you can get very harsh winters. The winters are harsh all the way along the east coast and we don't see so much of a kind of boom and bust effect on the west coast. We think because there are more inlets on the west coast and they can be more sheltered. So shags are really interesting in that for a, a seabird, and they're diving seabirds, they go for fish, they're actually not waterproof. A bird that isn't waterproof. I know, it's one of those things that sounds like a really terrible idea, but in fact they, they dive really deeply um, for birds that just go from the surface and dive down. They can get to about 40 metres, and the thought is that this kind of lack of waterproofing enables them to dive deeper, but what it does mean is that they're very restricted to be able to come back to land to roost because they need to be able to dry out their feathers. 
And on this kind of unsheltered eastern shores, we think if we're having bad winters, if there's really bad rain and, and winds, what's happening is they just can't dry out sufficiently and that they might be losing them through hypothermia or really high kind of costs of trying to keep themselves warm. What use will this information be, apart from the fact that you might be able to apply it to other populations of European shags in Wales and Cornwall and other areas where it's quite rocky and cliffy where they like to to be? Because it's such a a long data set we've got on this population and we know the individuals, we're in quite a unique position to be able to look at things like something we call a carryover effect, which is the effect that perhaps staying in a particular location has on the breeding success in a future season and that's not something many people have been able to look at but also from a shag perspective if we know uh, kind of key locations where they're they're more protected where they're surviving better over the winter that's something that perhaps in the future we might be able to protect for them so from a conservation perspective it could have applied relevance Hannah Grist from the University of Aberdeen and if you see one of Hannah's shags and you're able to identify the colouring on the bird's leg with its three letter code then she'd love to hear from you at shags at ceh.ac.uk and there are more Planet Earth online interviews on our website you can find them at thenakedscientists.com forward slash planet earth Diana thank you and now back to our theme this week of science underneath the sea Welding up a metal pipe doesn't sound terribly tricky, but what about when it's one kilometre underwater? Well, engineer Neil Woodward, who's working with scientists at Cranfield University, is doing just that and is also set to set a record in the process. I suppose, Neil, that these pipelines are for oil and gas. Yes, that's right. Yep, oil and gas pipes at a varying depths, and there are some at um, one kilometre water depth in the North Sea. Are these the major conduit through which we recover the output from platforms out in the North Sea, for example, and then bring it ashore? Yes, that's right. Yep, transport pipelines that bring it from the oil fields back ashore. And how extensive is that network then? Well, there's a massive um, network of pipes um, in the North Sea and in the Baltic Sea, all at varying depths and pipelines of various sizes, up to four and five foot in diameter. So up until now, if someone had a problem with one of those pipelines... What would they have to do about it? Is it just a complete decommission job and relay a new one? Um, it depends on the depth. Um, at the moment, if a pipe lies in up to 180 metres seawater, um, there are techniques with divers um, where we can um, do a repair um, on a pipeline up to 180 metres of seawater. There's techniques that we can use to repair that pipeline. Um, and it also depends on the diameter. For smaller pipelines, we can use mechanical connectors. If it's a large pipeline um, and it's beyond 180 metres of seawater, um, then we have an issue with the current methods with divers, and then that's when we have to look at fully remote techniques, which is what I've been working on for the last nine years. And what is a large pipeline as opposed to a small one? At the moment, we're kind of cutting off at 30 inches. So between a a, a pipeline diameter beyond 30 inches and up to 48 inches um, in diameter is where we are looking at welding those pipes subsea. Gosh. And what would be the sort of pressures and flow rates of the material inside those pipelines? For pressure tests, it can be up to 200 bar. The main issue is is that they are at depths beyond diver reaches. We're looking at being able to repair those pipes um, with dry hyperbaric welding, which is where we take equipment down and then close it around the pipe, um, expel all the seawater inside that chamber and then weld it in the dry. Okay, so this isn't, when we say welding underwater, this is not having some kind of lance that can operate in seawater. This is actually establishing a complete dry environment around, say, a damaged site on the pipe or something. Yes, yes, that's right. Yep, It's dry hyperbaric welding, which we know we can do in the lab. In the lab, we've used um, techniques to simulate that pressure, pressurised environment, and we've simulated pressures up to two and a half kilometre water depths. We've done that over the last 10 years, um, so we know we can do it in the lab, um, but the main issue is being proving that we can do it offshore um, in, a, in a real subsea environment with subsea equipment which has been designed and built. So how does it actually work then? What do you assemble around the pipe in order to achieve that isolated segment that's the one you want to weld? It's specially designed equipment. It's equipment that's lowered onto the seabed. It's effectively almost like a robot, a highly mechanised system which uses a number of electrical 
um, and hydraulic um, systems to be able to close around the pipe and for us to expel all the water inside, make it warm, make it dry, um, so we dehumidify the environments inside it, um, fill it with argon so that we can start welding. And how does your machine know where to weld? In other words, if you've got a split or a junction in a pipe, how does it identify the two edges and then put a weld across it? And then how does it assess the integrity of that weld? We do have um, vision systems, so we have camera systems um, that we've developed. And with regards to integrity, what we've been doing is aiming for robustness in the lab so that we know that when we're welding, we're monitoring the welding electrically so that we know what a good weld looks like, the trace of a good weld, and we know what a bad weld looks like as we're welding, both visually and electrically. I suppose, though, that the only way to test it is actually to repressurise the pipe with what was in it before. So this is quite an important question because if you get it wrong, then it's just going to rupture. Yes, that's right. There have been uh, there have been issues in the past. At the moment, what we've done is field trials. Um, so we've welded at 280 metres, um, 350 metres seawater for a different application, for a remote hot tapping application that we should also talk about, and also for a repair application, which we welded at 370 metres seawater uh, and 940 metres seawater. We recovered those wells to the surface um, and tested those wells. And when you say this hot tapping process, this is where you would have a pipeline that's operating and you want to splice off uh, some of that supply to take it somewhere else? Yes, that's right. There are applications where it's beneficial to be able to make a field flow in a different way. So it's an existing infrastructure, perhaps a large pipeline that's already been laid. It, It may have been down there for 20 or 30 years, and it's actually economically beneficial to tap into that pipeline and take out a small branch pipeline to change the flow characteristics of that field. It's called hot tapping because you're actually tapping into that pipeline while the product is still flowing. So the field is not shut down whilst you cut into that pipeline. We weld inside the connector that goes onto the existing pipeline. If uh, you'd had this technology functional when BP had its problem in the Gulf of Mexico last year, would this have made a difference to the outcome of that situation? That's a massive question. Potentially it would have given an alternative tool, an alternative process for for assessing whether something could have been repaired. All right, we must leave it there. Thank you very much, Neil. Uh, That was Neil Woodward from Isotech Oil and Gas Limited and also Cranfield University. And the work he was describing was funded by the UK's Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, the EPSRC. Diana. This is The Naked Scientists. We're joined by marine archaeologist Dave Parham from Bournemouth University and, as you've just heard, Dr Neil Woodward from Isotech Oil and Gas Limited and Cranfield University. Dave, we've had a question for you from Malcolm in Lowestoft. What are your views on exploring ships that were wrecked during the wartime and is it OK to explore these or should they be left as graves for the fallen? The coasts of the UK are littered with, with wrecks from both world wars which are extensively dived on by by amateur divers and occasionally investigated by archaeologists. Several of these wrecks, like the Royal Oak and the Vanguard in Scapa Flow, are actually protected as as designated sites because of the amount of human loss on them. Personally, I think that as long as people don't interfere with, with the war dead, I don't see an issue with people accessing these sites. It's no different, really, to the trench systems in northern France where people still walk across fields there, although we know there are bodies within the fields. So I suppose it's more about awareness then. Thanks very much, Dave. Uh, Nick in Cambridge says, on the subject of the underwater welding, how do you actually obviate or stop the fire risk? Because if you've got inflammable stuff in that pipeline, I know you said you put an argon atmosphere in there, but is that enough? Um, for the repair application, we use, yes, we use a fully inert um, atmosphere. There wouldn't be any product in the pipeline for a repair application and potentially there'd be plugs inside the pipe to make sure there was no risk. Um, for the hot tapping application, we're only welding on the outside of the pipe, so we're not welding anywhere near the middle of the pipe. And just while you're there, um, Ryan Chown on Facebook says, with, with wet welding, if you didn't have that dry environment, if you were trying to weld in the wet, how do those those waterproof arc welding electrodes work do you know 
There has been a lot of work done um, with wet welding. Um, there are issues with regard to the mechanical strength of wet welding um, and the depth capability of wet welding. It does work very well in shallow waters with divers, but not really for deep water applications. OK, Dave, I've uh, got another question here for you from Aaron Thomas, and he says, are scientists looking for evidence of underwater sites of habitation by humans, and if they are, where are they looking? Scientists are looking for underwater habitation sites that go back into the early periods of prehistory. There's been extensive work in the North Sea looking for such habitation sites and there's been a colossal amount of work in the Solent off the Isle of Wight near, near Boldner Cliff with the Hampson White Trust from Avatar Archaeology. I've done a lot of work, a lot of work looking at a Mesolithic site there. One of my favourites is the Grotte Cosquere where the entrance to this uh, Paleolithic cave is buried about 50 metres beneath the water and you can enter it and swim all the way up. I've got one here from um, Ben who says, is there a safe way to explore or recover the SS Richard Montgomery wrecked in the Thames estuary with 1,400 tonnes of explosives on board? What do you do about that situation, Dave? (laughs) Again, the coast of the UK are are covered in lots of unexploded ordnance from both world wars and my personal approach is to avoid it. We do encounter it occasionally and then we report it to the relevant authorities, but that's all that we can do with it. Just to finish this off, um, Shlomo Yonah on Facebook says, thank you for your interesting programme. Why do mammals like whales cope with pressure at the depths? Humans can't do the same. Well, the answer is whales come up really, really slowly. Humans, when we go down underwater, we use scuba, so we're actually using pressurised air, so we're dissolving lots of nitrogen in our bloodstream, and as a result, when you come up very quickly, which we tend to do, it all comes out of solution and you get bubbles and you get the bends. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. Yes, this week it's noises that set your teeth on edge. Hi, this is Paul from Waldingham. I was just wondering what the sensation was when your blood runs cold, say from fingernails scraping down a school blackboard. The sensation seems to start in the skull and then travel down the back and into your spine. So obviously something to do with nerves, but what is happening? Thanks for a great show. So what is it about certain noises that can really send shivers down your spine? I'm Trevor Cox. I'm Professor of Acoustic Engineering at the University of Salford. Now, when we drag fingernails down the blackboard, some people have a really strong reaction. It sends shivers down the spine. And actually, it's a really similar reaction to very emotional music. You know, when you get to that really heightened emotional point and you can feel the hair stand up on the back of your neck. So I suppose we can guess that maybe fingernails down the blackboard is you know, exciting the same parts of the brain. And The parts of the brain that get excited by music is actually the reward sense of the brain which deal with the same sort of stuff we get when we uh, take drugs. So I think we can know which parts of the brain are likely to be involved, but then why does it get triggered from this scraping sound? Well, I think the clue might be is if, if you listen to the sound quality, if you can bear to listen to the sound quality, because the sound of scraping fingernails is actually a bit similar to a scream. It's high pitched, it's very rough. And so I think what's happening is your brain is misinterpreting the sound as being a threat signal, someone's in distress. And of course, this is something you can have a strong emotional response to because you might need to protect someone or you might yourself need to run away because you're in danger. So I think it might be a rather overreaction to what we think is a distress call. It may be that the pitch of the sound of nails trailing down a blackboard matches that of a scream or similar distress signal and that our bodies are programmed to experience the same level of tension and fear at it. It's an emotional response which some people are more likely to feel than others. But from feelings of fear to something altogether more exciting. Next week, the pleasures of the fish. This is John Gamble in Louisville, Kentucky. I know that in order to encourage mammals and other creatures to reproduce, there's always a sort of a payback. And that makes sense as long as there's some kind of physical contact between the the, the mating partners. But I cannot figure out what it is that induces fish to get a big charge out of just squirting their seed into the water. Are there any immediate benefits felt by fish upon laying their eggs? Is there an incentive? Let us know what you think by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can write on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum or you can Twitter at Naked Scientists. Now, Diana, just going back to the fingers down a blackboard experience, what is the 
experience you've had that most elicits that sensation in you? Do you know, I, I actually don't have much of a problem with the fingernails down the blackboard. That's but terrible. No, I, it's, I'm fine with that. What I really, really cannot stand, the thing that really upsets me, are actually screaming babies. I, it just, I cannot listen to it, so I have to get some earplugs or something, and I, just, I can't cope. There was a lady who is from, I think, uh, Sussex University, and she did a study on cats, and she recorded cats mewing because she was convinced that her cat mewed differently when it wanted something compared with when it didn't want something. And she found that they do these solicitation purrs, uh, which has an extra little mewing noise nested inside the cat purr. And when she recorded this and analysed the frequency, it's the same frequency that a baby cries at. And she thinks that the cats have learned to cry like that in order to plug into your sensitive side and and trigger your nurturing instinct in order to make you want to uh, look after the cat and give it what it wants. In other words, because you find it annoying, you pay attention to it. Yeah, well, I suppose that makes sense if they've been co-evolving with humans for the last, what, sort of 14,000 years or something like that anyway. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to our production team, Tom Simpkins, Mira Senthaling and Ben Vautzler, Hannah Critchlow and... Anne Rowe Carroll. Thank you to Dave Parnham and to Neil Woodward, our guests. Next week, smartphones to monitor the gestures that people make. Join us if you can. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more cutting edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. 